Coming up, death. It's the spookening. Welcome to the spookening. I'm sorry about the Halloween puns this year. I know no, they haven't not. been. No, no, I'm not sorry about their existence. I'm just sorry they're not deader. You know, oh, like they they should be. You know, I, I do this every fear. They should be deader than they are. I think deader, of course, being a Halloween pun for better. This year, I've been just kind of letting myself do some subpar Halloween puns. It's okay. You're absolved. Thanks, Brandon. You're welcome. <clears throat> that, of course, Brandon Chast Fiend. Your stabs off. He's, he's a priest, <laughs> apparently. Stabs off. Absolving people yep. over here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I got my quick uh, priest's license from CatholicPriest.com. You know CatholicPriest.com? Got a license? Yeah. You have to fill out a form or anything? Nope. No? <laughs> you just, just, you just had to renounce, it, renounce his family, that's all. That's all. You just had to renounce your family? That's all I had to do. Poor your family. Well, they don't know. The CatholicPriest.com that I wasn't serious. Uh, All they say is, "Do you renounce your family?" And you just say, "Yes." That's the part. That's part of the problem with these terms and conditions. You don't even <laughs> have to read them anymore. You just, so you're okay with announcing to your wife, though, she, though that you renounced her in jest. In jest, yeah. I announced you in jest, honey. Denounced. <laughs> I, Re. I Renounced. Yeah. Denounced. Announced. There you go. It's Brendan Chast Fiend. He uses the words. He's the scholar who's a mauler of bleeding. Mm. <laughs> so gross. And of course, the pastor who's a disaster of bleeding. <laughs> That's even grosser. Just imagine Jake's just taking just a grenade to the, the chest place. or something. <laughs> it's Jake Mentzkiller. It's me. Mm-hmm. And I never give myself What's my real name. Oh, I forgot to say last time. I'm your humble and obedient ghost. Ooh. Yeah, Nathan Albersin. Well, I'm sorry. It's not that easy to do a Halloween pun for Nathan. Everybody's so disappointed. Everybody's feelings are hurt. Yeah. Mine, most of all. Mm-hmm. Yours, ghost of all. Oh, true. So good. So good. Before we talk about Frankenstein, let's compose a Halloween poem. Oh, boy. <laughs> so, everyone, if you're sitting around your fire, turn down the lights and get ready for some spooktacular poetry. Ad lib. Dead lib? Ad squib? Dead limbed. Dead limbed? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're going to dead limb some poetry. All, we'll each just do lines. It was Halloween night. Oh, what a fright. When what should appear? But a man with a spear. <laughs> He broke down my door. <laughs> right down to the floor. Nice. And stabbed me real hard. I bled screaming through the yard. <laughs> and then I fell down. Right onto the ground. Slant rhyme. Boo. Yeah. Then I fell down right onto the ground. Then I fell down as I At fled the feet from a clown. As a, that's still a slant rhyme. I'm trying to de-slant. Down and clown? Yeah. Down and clown's not a slant rhyme. No, down and clown. All right. Perfect fine. Rhyme. At the feet of a clown. He pulled me... To the drain <laughs> and sang his refrain. Ha 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 he he. How happy we'll be. <laughs> My face is orange. Oh. And I am a clown. The end. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, being creepier than I expected it would be. <laughs> All right.
right. You're welcome, kiddos. We'll come back next week, if I remember, with another Halloween poem, because that's what we do. We like to celebrate the month of Halloween all month long when it's spooktober and we're doing scary stuff. So I wish we had those pumpkin Reese's peanut butter cups. I wish we had those pumpkin Reese's peanut butter cups, too. Those are really good. Those are like a lot of times novelty shaped candy. We'll just get the proportions wrong. And with a Reese. Reese's novelties are always better than the real thing. Precisely. Yep. That's Man, those are good. Yeah, the eggs are the Mm -hmm. bomb. Let's go get some. We'll see you later, people. (laughs) Yeah, thanks for listening. Hey, let's talk about Frankenstein. Did you guys enjoy this novel? Uh, I think I said I was kind of indifferent towards it. Yeah, that's right. You already. Um, I enjoyed parts of it, but really, it didn't do a lot for me or to me. Mm -hmm. You weren't terrified under the sheets reading with a flashlight? I wasn't terrified under the sheets. I think a lot of interesting ideas and things to talk about come out of it. It's but. a novel that's fun to approach academically, that's fun to theorize about, mm-hmm. that's fun to read and kind of speculate about Mary it's, Shelley's yeah, life. It's, it's best in context. It's yes. best in the con- in Shelley's personal context, <clears throat> and it's best in context of sort of the history of the genre. Yeah. I really wanted to sympathize with Victor more than I did. Mm-hmm. Um, uh-huh. And I think a lot of it has to just do with the over-the-topness of the expression of emotion. Mm-hmm. Like even early on with Walton's, um, her attempt to make him seem like some super genius, super genius, forlorn, brilliant man that, uh, the sort of thing that, um, Conrad does a much better job at with Heart of Darkness. I'm glad you said that because what a wonderful counterpoint to talk about where he's doing kind of similar sort of things with Marlowe and this mysterious stranger sitting in the darkness, smoking his pipe. And you're really like, who is this guy? But he finds those details that tell. Whereas she's just like, he was really a compelling guy. So, I mean, you end up, maybe it's the point, you end up sympathizing more with a monster than you do with Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's necessarily her point, but at least that's the way I felt it. Also, that whole scene, this is just an aside, this doesn't even have to stay in. I'm wondering if that whole scene where he's watching the family, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if that was an inspiration for that creepy last story of Jesus' son, where he keeps, where he's the... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that could be. Because he's kind of a monster, but he's healing at that point. Mm-hmm. And I think that maybe he's... Uh, anyways. What was the point of that section? Like, what was she trying to do there? She needed an ex- uh, a way for him to learn how to speak. Yeah. Yeah, but it takes... You have that whole thing about... What's <sighs> well, her name? Justine, so the, the Islamic girl things. and everything. She needed a reason for him. She needed a way for him to learn how to speak. Mm-hmm. A way for him to learn how to... Some basic understanding of people and a way to be hurt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that he could become the monster that, because if you believe in, as Brandon was saying in the context or the innate goodness of man Mm -hmm. left to himself, he needed to be twisted. But it's like the immaturity of her as a writer just shines through in all these places where it's just like, I need this to happen. So, okay, I guess this happened. There's no particular. This massive monster manages to live in a lean-to attached to the side of their house. Right. Well, he had to have a way to have an education. Mm -hmm. And so you see that she slowly, she does that with, he first puts together images and things begin to have definition and then he starts to learn language. And then out of that, he begins to learn history. And then out of that, yeah, he learns to read. And then he finally, so then he has his three books that teach him what they were Plutarch's lives. Paradise um, Lost. Paradise Lost. And what was the other one? Oh, I forget. Uh, It was important. Was it The Sorrows of Young Werther? I think it was The Sorrows of Young Werther. Could be. I don't remember. It definitely was. So those are the three. So the first one he talks about was The Sorrows of Young Werther, where he felt very sympathetic to Werther. And then the Plutarch's lives. Yeah, because Werther taught him sentiment. Plutarch's lives taught him high sentiment. And then Paradise Lost taught him to sympathize with the devil, (laughs) basically. (laughs) 
And yeah. um, to question his creator. And so what she's doing is she thinks she's being clever and revealing to us how all of we uh, how we progress with our education. First, we start out as classical education teaches us, mm-hmm. which is very useful with Dorothy Sayers. We start out with the young stage where we're just learning and memorizing things. Then we start to learn to question, and then we turn into the poet, mm-hmm. right? And then, so you see him progressing on those stages. Into the poet is where he wants to have a relationship and go and talk to this family. Why, what I think she's doing with that one family, why she has that family, because they're supposed to be kind of the ideal. Mm-hmm. They're a good family. Why the intrigue about Islam because she was very she was a political person and she thought you know she it was about those who are on the margins and I social injustice marginalized I yeah. see I mean she was a very political person I think that comes out there with uh, what was his name the son Ernest or something the one that dies or oh I'm sorry the you the mean, one in the hut in the hut yeah, yeah yeah the one who the Arabic woman comes back to mm-hmm. I don't remember what but so he did this noble th- he gave up. His whole life. His whole life for her sake. And his whole family suffered for her sake. But then you have them in the state of nature, isolated in this German woods, and they're happy and they're content. And it's this romanticized um, idea of, like Rousseau had, the perfect barbarians who are separated from society. Now that they're away from society, they can be this ideal family and mm-hmm. the whole, even the whole relationships that he's sees between them, how sweet the brother is to the sister and how sweet the father is to all of them. And then how this... It's just so um, one-dimensional. Right. It's very, very cheesy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was. That's kept what I kept feeling is that this is, this is, plays into what, it has none of the three-dimensionality of Jane Austen or Tolstoy. It just plays exactly into how she wants the world to look. Mm-hmm. And she's able to get away with, in the case of that family, the family comes to us from, from the creature, through Frankenstein, through Walton, to Walton's sister. And so everything like that, she doesn't even have to try yep. to, to not be sentimental. Yeah, right. she can just be as sentimental as she yeah. wants to be. And it's all filtered through like five different lenses. And mm-hmm. so I wish that she used that to do something more mythic or more to give us. If she's going to do that, I wish she had the talent to do it well. <laughs> something more honest. Well. well, it's just sort of a, yeah, yeah. it's not honest. It's a yeah. cop out. But if you're going to, sense. if you're going to reduce it to the level of a fable, then let's tell a fantastic fable. Yeah. Like what because I'm thinking of is the the first third of Dracula. The, the second two thirds really fall apart as we talk about on those podcasts. But the first third really feels big and mythic and scary and he's going to the castle and there's these brides and there's Dracula and it's just it it functions it's not deep it's very two-dimensional but the two-dimensionality actually becomes an asset because it functions as just pure nightmare beyond just a few random images of the monster grinning through the window maybe when he's making the bride and some stuff like that she's never able to give us that at least at least I didn't feel that mythic kind of feeling of, oh, here's a fable about a creature that was outcast and went into the woods and found this family. And I mean, Grimm's, the Grimm brothers, you just imagine how they would tell that story. They'd wring a lot of simple truth and a lot of simple emotion out of a story like that. Mm-hmm. And they do it with fairly two-dimensional archetypes and simple language. She has the two-dimensional archetypes and she has the simple language, but she doesn't manage to wring much out of it somehow. No, it's because it's all just this very misguided understanding of the world. Well, the, the horror of doing something forbidden and something perverse is there. And it's felt, it's there to be felt, I think, at various points in the novel. And depending on where you are 
in life, I can see this book being a very powerful experience of that for you in terms of processing, you know, your, your deep, dark sins, the things that you're ashamed of, the things that you've done or are tempted to do that are perverse or unholy, mm-hmm. forbidden. And so that's there, and all of that's there, depending on how much you bring to it, I think, and how much you maybe need somebody to help you externalize that, I think, for the first time is where it's got to be its most powerful. Horror is always the province of the young, because young people like seeing these things externalized. It helps them think through their own sin and depravity and the way the world works. But I think that actually helps me put a finger on what I was trying to say, then kind of got lost in trying to articulate it. Mm -hmm. The problem with her is... Since the romantics are so much about the sublime and the intensity of feeling, it rings false. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And then so his, like going into fits and all these fevers yes. that he goes into and all this yeah. just For as intense. Time. She sees this as a virtue. And you just like say, he's like a major baby. Well, and then like he'll he's go like, for he's a like, walk. he's dramatizing all this and it's kind of perverse. He'll go for a walk in the countryside and yeah. suddenly he'll feel better. And the yeah. you really see that bogus romanticism where it's just like Clavel and me and it'll go on for three boring pages about a walk, you know, through the countryside. Suddenly he feels invigorated, he feels good again and it's just yeah. like And so that's where uh, that's where you really see her immaturity coming through is that I'm with you that the story itself, like the modern, we didn't even talk about what the modern Prometheus means. This mm-hmm. guy who's done something he shouldn't have done. Prometheus so stole Prome- fire from yep. the gods, if anybody doesn't yep. know. And he gave fire to us, and so we would have fire, and he was punished for it. Mm-hmm. And so Victor Frankenstein, he goes and he finds the secret to life, and now he's punished for it. Mm-hmm. That's the conceit. That's the metaphor that's running through here. Mm-hmm. But the real, the real problem, I think, really is just, it's her immaturity, her lack of any sort of nuance Mm -hmm. about her romanticism. Um, She's still living in this naive Lake Geneva period. My understanding is that her later fiction becomes much more complicated. Yes. Yes, I've heard that too. I don't Um, know it from firsthand. But yeah, so just... And it's this sort of same stupidity you get with Sorrows of Young Werther. I've read that book and I just, I don't recommend it at all to anybody. It's just foolish love of your emotion for your emotion's sake. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm trying to think of... It reminds me of certain movies. Where you just, you're, the intensity of your feeling is all that matters. Right. It doesn't matter whether or not it's right or wrong. It's just, and so he goes to the Mont Blanc and he has this intense spiritual mm. connection with the world and it kind of heals him. But also it's just the fact that he can feel so intensely, which is his virtue. Yeah. That's Victor's virtue and also then his downfall. And you see that she's just really in love with that idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, she's hot for a man who has the power to redefine the world and re- yeah. and make himself a god. Yeah. But she and understands feels... on some level that that's a destructive thing. Like she's Yeah. She's not yeah. going to pretend like it ends happily, but there is no, there's something existential gl- and noble it. about the Yeah. He's going to trek into the wilderness. The tragedy of the man who can touch the gods, you know. Yeah. And you have to imagine that's <clears throat> the way she looked at Shelley. Right. I mean, she had already, at this point, she had already had to forgive him for his adultery. I mean, not even adultery at the time. She committed adultery with him, and then he went and fornicated with Claire. Her sister. Yeah. It was all just messy and nasty and gross. And she had to somehow justify this to herself by saying, well, Percy is a genius. He's one of these great gods, and I just... And what goes hand in hand with that is this deep feeling and passion that is hard to control and tame. Yeah goes out and does and creates 
the very thing that will destroy him. If yeah, I mean, it's the same sort of excuses people make for like rock stars and stuff. Right. Today. It's the existential philosophy we'll get if we ever do Camus. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were both sleeping with Simone de Beauvoir and uh, Sartan Camus at the same time. And just this really twisted love triangle and they were all okay with it or at least they said they were okay with it the reason is is because your philosophy even if it runs contrary to your conscience and to the natural feelings that you just have your philosophy has to be vindicated somehow and so Mm -hmm. that's what this novel is doing is it feels so unnatural because she's trying to vindicate a philosophy that in its in the end is hollow and empty well the fascinating thing is if it's if it's a if it's a saga of a rock star then it's written by the ultimate groupie and she doesn't give the groupies in the story any agency not to get all sex politics about it but the mary shelley characters in this story the women are all passive and obliterated just yeah. destroyed and you don't get the feeling that they're, they're necessarily awesome young flowers that get crushed yeah that just yeah. get destroyed on the wedding night i mean there's no way around the uh symbolism the of... symbolism the freudian uh, yeah. the, the freud of it all I wouldn't give this novel to anyone to process these things, I don't think. Not that I think it's super perverse or that a mature 15-year-old couldn't handle it, but I just don't think it's all that great. I think you could probably go other places for this same symbolism. You could do worse, though. What would you give them? Well, I'm trying to think. I knew that would be the next question, and I'm not quite sure I have an answer. Yeah, I wouldn't be against giving this to anyone. I'm not saying I'd be against it. I'm just saying I would never think to because I don't have a lot of respect for it as an actual novel i my my take on this book is that for a teenage person mm-hmm. who would be who would be tempted by the romantic ideal right there's a reason that shelley and mary shelley and percy shelley all these people were tempted by romanticism is because it's a very tempting philosophy for someone who wants to be all about no responsibility bohemian lifestyle and sex mm-hmm. i mean it gives you everything you want you get to look at yourself as a god or at least a potential god or someone who has the right to be among gods and you also get to have all the pleasure you want. Do you, do you think that a, a modern teen reading this is going to come away romanticizing that no. and romanticizing Victor? I don't think so. I, I think, think that I our think... I think our culture is so changed now that this book really doesn't hold those dangers for a modern teenager. If I don't any, know that if it, anything. They're probably going to laugh at it. Yeah, that's the thing I'm thinking is it doesn't hold the enticements and therefore it's not effective. Like it holds neither the dangers nor the the virtues because it's just maybe I'm reading too much of my own experience of the novel. I may be too old. I don't feel it to be very dangerous, but I feel it to have some potential virtue (laughs) for somebody. Where I would land is that with a good teacher, you could draw these things out for the students and Mm -hmm. they would be able to see it. I would rather that they read Something Wicked This Way Comes. But I think there's good fodder for discussion here. That's probably fair. You've got Will and you've got, what's Darkshade? What's his name? Jim? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Jim is Victor Frankenstein. He wants to ride that carousel. Much more fun. I mean, like if I had a 15 year old kid, I'm just thinking, which one would I actually be excited to? Re- I'm, I'm, I'm not being. Oh yeah. I'm not being a moralist here. I'm just being a person Pr- that pragmatist. I'm just yeah, somebody that likes books, and it's just like, who wants to read Frankenstein? Who wants to make kids read Frankenstein? You can read the Wikipedia summary, and you'll have gotten most of what's good out of the book. I mean, honestly, there's it's just. A- mm. The idea, the reason the idea survives is because the idea itself is powerful. Yes, I agree. And I I want to maintain that the idea itself is so powerful that this still holds up as a place to process that sort of thing. I guess what I'm trying to get at, I don't disagree with you at all. I guess what I'm trying to get at is times change, culture moves on. You go back and you watch 2001 and Space Odyssey, those special effects that blew everyone's mind and that hippies went and smoked dope and had trips... They just aren't that exciting anymore. And I think it's silly for 
I think a lot of artistic like, poser type people will pretentiously oppress themselves and others by trying to pretend like something that had a lot of power 50 or 100 or 200 years ago still does. And it's just like, I'm sorry, these this idea actually has been absorbed by pop culture. It's been done a thousand times now. Let's not pretend like the original still retains much mm-hmm. potency. You there you want to watch, you want to get the get a good version of the idea, maybe just watch the 1931 Boris Karloff movie. It's an hour long. It'll give you most of the major ideas. It won't be as heavy on the sexual symbolism because they couldn't have even gotten away with what's done in the book in the movie back then. That's how much times have changed. But, you know, at least you'll get the part where he's, where the the guy says, Henry, in the name of God. And he says, in the name of God, now I know what it feels like to be God. And, you know, you'll, you'll sort of get the, the Promethean idea mm-hmm. and you'll get it in an hour instead of spending six hours reading a book that really doesn't hold a lot of potency anymore. Go read the tale of Prometheus. You could go read the tale of Prometheus. You do that? Yeah. I think your best bet, I'm going to say your best bet is to read something Wicked This Way Comes. So you would not put this on a high school reading list? Nah, I don't think so. I'm not opposed to if Jake wants to say put it on a high school reading list, I'll send my kids to Jake's school and I won't be sorry. But it wouldn't be my first choice to put on a high school reading list. Why not put something good? A lot of there's a lot of books, you know. Wow. Am I being uh? What am I being? Am I being a snob? Am I being a? I think you might be being a little bit of a snob, but it is not the most exciting book, and it's certainly not the most well written book. You know what I'm being is I'm just being my I'm just channeling my 17 year old self and just saying. I wouldn't this, want to read this. I would thing. never want to read this. This is so yeah. boring. Like, there's so many good, you know. How about your 13 or 14 year old self? Well, I may have tried it then. And I think I tried it a number of times. I mean, I went through maybe a 15 year period where I was into all the gothic and horror and stuff. I could never make it through Frankenstein. You were looking for something different. But I mean, I could get. I read Picture of Dorian Gray, which is basically just a bunch of Oscar Wilde people trading barbs and maybe a little smattering of horror. Like, I read all that stuff. I read everything. There's nothing that you, you know, there's none of the classics that I didn't do, but Frankenstein, I mean, I've done Jekyll and Hyde. I've done, but Frankenstein. Jekyll and Hyde is hard. Yeah. So like I remember, I think I tried Jekyll and Hyde multiple times. Maybe I did persevere in it at one point, but I don't remember if I did or didn't. I know that I tried it multiple times and just thought, well, that's a perfect example of a potent idea. One that's helpful for high schoolers to think through one that can teach you something about yourself and a slog of a book. Mm-hmm. And that's one that I got through just on principle because I liked the genre mm. and I wanted to know well, who the forebears were. Frankenstein, well, I, didn't I never feel could. That, I didn't feel that this was that w- was nearly as much of a slog as Jekyll and Hyde to me back in the day. Maybe I would have felt differently about Frankenstein back in the day. It was, it wasn't a page turner. It was not. Right. <laughs> no, I wasn't excited. <laughs> but I never, I, I wasn't excited, but I, I never, I also never really resented having yeah. to come back and keep plowing through it. No, I'm kind of in the same place. So, like I said, I really, my feeling in the end towards this book is just complete indifference. Mm-hmm. I think that mm-hmm. if someone were to tell me that they wanted this on their high school reading list, what I would say is I would first think about who the teacher is. Yes, absolutely. And if it's a good teacher, they're going to be able to draw <clears throat> really good things to say about romanticism and about horror and about, and teach the children about the follies of romanticism and all this stuff, then fine. They can get it from this. And then they can also do something wicked this way comes as a nice parallel and palate cleanser. If I, if I was teaching this, if I, if I was actually doing, if I was a high school teacher, what I would do, this is actually what I would do. I would have the kids read a Shelley. I'd have them, def, I'd have them do Rhyme of the Ancient Marner, Marner, of course, you know, some of the classics. I'd have them read 
a poem by all these guys so that they got the sweep of the movement. I'd give them the history. And then we would read a couple of selections from Frankenstein, actually. We would just read yeah. the creation of the monster. I think you could get away mm-hmm. with that. We this, would read... Yeah, I think that that's good. Yeah. This is a book that screams to be abridged. Yes. Yeah. Because yeah. You, you've got all like the whole th- scene in Oxford when he I goes agree, with Serval. Yeah. There's just no reason behind that except she just wants to talk I about it. I like that. In the, in, in the course of a of a literature class, this sort of satisfies my hesitation with dismissing it. Yes. Reading a yeah. few select it's so it's such a touchstone. It is type thing. And so get the nutrition out. I, so go ahead and get what's nutritious from it. Realize there's not that much flavor at this point, two hundred mm-hmm. years down the road. And so let's get the nutrition as quickly and efficiently as possible and move on. Yeah. I, I agree with I'm that. I like that. that. I like that. All right. We, we cracked the code. Booking in consensus. So we take our scalpel to it. Mm-hmm. Look at that. We had a disagreement yeah. and then we argued to consensus like we always do. Yeah. It's amazing. I think we should end with a disagreement. I think we should keep the whole book because books should not be... Are you a Nazi? Is that what you are? No, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You, like, because the point of argument is not to come to agreement or consensus. It's just to just... Nathan? Yes, Brandon. I'm a Nazi. Yeah, Nazi. <laughs> So now how every good argument ends is by accusing someone of being a Nazi. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> There's a name for I that. I win. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the, it's a principle. Yeah, it's the, it's, it's every, it's the principle G. that every online argument will end with Hitler being invoked. Yeah. I mean, so are we going to talk about that argument? <laughs> <laughs> It'd be more fun than talking about Frankenstein. So Godwin's law. Godwin's law, yes. Hey, Godwin. Godwin. Hashtag Godwin. Hey, Godwin. Is it the same Godwin? William Godwin? He would always reduce arguments to Hitler. Yeah, I mean, Hitler, <laughs> he was a prophet. Yep. <laughs> um, let go and let Godwin. Yeah, every argument should be a screaming match. Mike Godwin. We should raise our voices really loudly. Now, Nathan. Coined in 1990 on Usenet. That's fascinating. Mike Godwin and, was a prophet. Yeah. And it was about the internet. And it was about Usenet newsgroup discussions. And... It is the adage in its proper form is as an online discussion grows longer, the probability of a comparison involving Hitler approaches. Yeah. Which implies if it goes on long enough, sooner or later, someone will compare somebody or someone in the discussion to Hitler. Yeah, because that's the ultimate ad hominem attack. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You're the ultimate ad hominem attack. He's there, Nathan. You're the one who wants to cut books down. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This is a classic for a reason. It's part of the canon, Nathan. I am a pragmatist when it comes to books. I think that, I, honestly, <laughs> to, if we want to wring a little discussion out of this, I, I'm sure we've probably talked about this before, but I just think books were made for man. Man was not made for books. You should mm-hmm. be deferential towards your fathers in the faith, obviously, but your fathers in, you know, the great minds that have come before you, you should be deferential to them. So you should assume when you're going into a book that if it's a classic, it probably is, has something good to say and it's worth reading. But then, you know, if it's something like Frankenstein and you can kind of get the drift of it and read the high points and skip the boring stuff with Clavel, why not? Yeah. I think more teachers and educators would do well to do that for their students. And probably students would love to read more if they knew that there was that freedom. Yeah. Yeah. I just always want to tell people you can quit a book. You can skip the Russian politics in Anna Karenina. Yep. I just, I, I want one of the Bookening's missions to be... You can read the title of the Red Badge of Courage and then call it good. I don't need to read that. <laughs> so. I want to attack Crane again because yeah. I, I hated that book as a I, kid. I, I just, <laughs> I, it popped into my head earlier as just one of those books, mm-hmm. speaking of Jekyll and Hyde, like one of those books that I was told I should read, I had a copy of, I try. I don't know how many times I tried that book mm-hmm. and I just was like, nope. I have a suspicion we might like it if we came to it now. I've, I did the same thing that you're describing, but it seems like it's maybe possible. it was actually good. I don't know. I mean, there's probably 
a reason why yeah. it was people tried to force feed it to me. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that reason is. I never, I really did try to find out and was just like, yeah, no, not interested. Don't care. Well, we got to do Stephen Crane sometime, I suppose. One day. One day. Well, what else is there to talk about this novel? People should feel free not to read it or just to, heck, if you've listened to these podcasts, you've gotten most of what's useful about Frankenstein, I think. Brandon's context was more useful than actually reading Frankenstein, as far as I'm concerned. Maybe that's a little overstated, but that's kind of what I do is I overstate things just a little bit. That's what we love about you, Nathan. Thanks, Brandon. I'm like Victor Frankenstein himself. You are. I like to overstate things. And you have a corpse that you're trying to reanimate yep. in your house. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> yes, Starting I to stink. Do. That's what the, is that sad that that's all I could really think about in this book? What? Is how, how awful is he keeping, his apartment must have yeah, How is he keeping this thing from stinking? Well, now, to be fair, Frankenstein in the book, and I just called the monster Frankenstein because that's how blowbrow I am. I just thought it was interesting how little detail it went into as to what- Yeah, yeah that was does. totally shocking. She wouldn't be able to get away with it at that time. I mean, Mm -hmm. I guess that's just a curiosity of the state of uh, censorship at the time. Well, but then again, she, you know, her conceit allowed her to not have to and Mm -hmm. allow it to just sort of have a mystery and mystique about it. Like, you know, it's told through by Frankenstein to this guy. And of course, Frankenstein doesn't want anybody repeating his mistakes. So he's not going to say, give away any details of how it was done. Yeah good job you picked a conceit that allowed you absolute liberty to do whatever you wanted I wonder if he has that recipe locked away in a vault in georgia like the coke company mm-hmm. <laughs> recipe for creating a reanimated corpse yeah probably <laughs> just like the coke company <laughs> they also have that's probably what the coke company is actually hiding in its vault a reanimated corpse the recipe probably what? coca-cola is the secret oh man reanimated corpses are the sequel secret to coca-cola is that what you're saying <laughs> Well, I was that's yes. equally interesting to what I was saying, which is that <laughs> Coca-Cola saying, is the sometimes secret when to reanimating like corpses. Oh, <laughs> if I feel like a corpse, sometimes if I drink a Coke, I feel reanimated. And I've drank a lot of Cokes in my life, and I generally feel like a bloated monster. <laughs> <laughs> so it's all... So it all, it it all, all makes fits. sense. <laughs> it all tracks. <laughs> we cracked it. <laughs> oh, guys, what else is there to talk about in this novel? Let's see. It's all a metaphor for sex, just like everything is. And it's a rather good one in this case. Goodwin, a rather good win. Anyone? Yeah. Boo. Boo. Oh, boy. (laughs) How do you know whether a ghost, how does a ghost express displeasure at a speaker? Yay. It says, I don't know. If ghosts just naturally say boo, then what do they do in a situation where they need to indicate that they are displeased with someone who is giving a speech? They say boo all the more loudly. Boo. It'd just be like a bunch of ghosts being ghosts. They say literal boo. (laughs) Literal boo. No, I think the more interesting question is, has a ghost express approval? I think the reason they're saying boo all the time is they just disapprove of everyone and everything. Yeah. So your theory is that ghosts just disapprove. Are... <laughs> they're disapproving, <laughs> just... disapproving ghosts. <laughs> boo, get a new light fixture. That's the kind of stuff yeah, there. This is like the chandelier yeah. shaking and <laughs> yeah. then you hear boo. It's like this yeah. light fixture is yeah. terrible. Your table sucks. <laughs> your taste is terrible. Right. That's why We're gonna tell ghosts my house isn't haunted because I have good taste. Yeah. But Brandon's house... house it's haunted because I have a bad taste. <laughs> <laughs> Easy there. <laughs> I will not tell you guys which one of your houses would be more haunted if that was the criteria or dieteria, as I like to say. It probably be mine. Um, I will. What's that? It might. It probably be mine. I'm not gonna say. There are things about you guys' decorating styles that I like in each family, and maybe some things I don't. But what? Who cares about my opinion? Well, I do. 
Was Everybody that? listening does. I That's true. Torture chamber. You not about torture? not about decor though. Yeah, not so much about decor. Ooh, ooh. Uh, what else is there to talk about? We got um, got a little bit more time to fill here, guys. <laughs> well, what else is there? To Why say? is there not much to say about this novel? None of us obviously found it to be all that compelling. Even the, yeah, I mean, I bet close. The staunch to... defender over here, Jake, the staunch defender. Yeah, didn't close reads want us to start a flame war again? Close bleeds. Close ghost bleeds. They're not, are they not nostalgic for that? Okay, I don't know. Hi, close reads. All I was going to say is they'd probably maybe they'd probably find a way to make this into like ten episodes. Yeah. Well, I mean, how we many could... chapters long is it? So tell us what. Maybe the close read should tell us what we could have said about this. Ghost bleeds. Ghost bleeds. Nose bleeds. Nose bleeds. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're trying to give him a cool Halloween name. Ghost bleeds. Ghost bleeds is our friend. D- Jake went on the internet. He was interviewed by David. David. Kern. Kern. David Byrne. David. <laughs> he was interviewed by the, uh, <laughs> the Talking Heads yeah. front man. Yes. David Byrne. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> David Byrne. Oh, I don't know. Is there anything else? To, okay. The romanticism. We've talked about that. Sex. We've talked about that. Horror. We've talked about that. It's epistolary. Yeah. I hate that sort you, of thing so much. You hate epistolary novels. Yeah. It's, just, it's an established fact. I yeah, Jake has mentioned that he hates epistolary novels. Before. I hate I hate them when they cheat. I think they're. I don't lazy. like the idea. I think they can be done well, but I think they're so often just so lazy, and they're an excuse. And they often are. They come from somebody who's really proud. Mm-hmm. I wonder. And if so we... the whole point is like, if I just write all of my profound thoughts as somebody else, hashtag Gilead, then it will be seen as. And it's just like, oh, please. Can we Come think on. of a good epistolary novel? You know what? I think actually handles the form. It's a little cheesy. Remains of the day is sort of. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's not epistolary. It's a journal, but, it, but it's, it's still, a journal, it but it's got that same. It's not epistles yeah. to someone, but it's yeah. still, it counts. Yeah. It's the journal novel, but it's the same. Yeah. It's same principle. Same species. You don't feel yeah. it straining under the weight of, I'm going to stop <clears throat> writing now so that the plot can move forward, which is and how actually, a lot of these things. I'm now going to give some exposition that makes me look, that makes, as this character, that makes me look great. And Ishiguro is smart enough right. and uh, has enough discernment to see your point. Yeah. And that he chose that form because it is the form of a proud person. Mm-hmm. That's exactly it. Ishigulu. Gulu. Man, this is a hard novel to talk about. Well, I didn't like it that much. I didn't hate it. And I'm sure if we were to just go, so we could go through and just find all the, the color purple, Dracula, the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Society. Mm-hmm. It's a good one. So diety. Screw tape. That's true. Screw tape's a good one. That's Screw tape's good, good. Carrie. I did not realize that Carrie was epistolary. 84 Charing Cross Road. No idea what that is. I'm just reading The Moonstone. That's Gilead. right. I forgot The Moonstone was. Boo. The Boons, the Boo Stone. Uh, what, 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 did you have a suggestion for how to actually discuss some more Frankenstein there, Brandon? No, I was going to say, really, the only way to discuss this novel would to be just to go through a very literary analysis style and just point out all the romantic tropes in it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's easy enough to do. We talked about Mont Blanc. Yep. All these. The Sorrows of Young Werther. Sorrows of Young Werther. All these references. She's being very referential. Mm-hmm. It's epistolary. Oh, yeah, it is. That's right. I forgot about that. I forgot how it handles the fact that he shoots himself at the end. <laughs> well, I hate when they have to strain to make the plot. Like in Dracula, there's that ridiculous part where not Mina Harker, but the other one is is dying because Dracula just killed her. And she's like, I must write my thoughts before yeah. as my mother bleeds out 
next to me and I'm also bleeding out, the one thing I must do is make a Grab final my journal. journal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you imagine that it just ends with a long pen scratch. As yeah, her, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she de- it's like the Monty Python it's my, thing. It's exactly, the, Monty Python. Ah. The castle, ah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh man, guys. Is that the first time we've referenced Monty Python? It's something that I really feel like the booking should try and avoid because when people reference a lot of Monty Python, it's not always a sign of I think it might awesomeness. be the first time. That, well, it can't possibly in three years be the first time. It's not a sign of what? It's not always necessarily a sign of awesomeness. When I like Monty Python. No, it's often a sign of fake awesomeness. Right, but a lot of faux poser people like to t- quote Monty Python a lot. See, I'm sophisticated because I like old British humor. Ha <laughs> ha. And Or I'm a frat boy. It's like two weird groups of people. Frat boys and sophisticated, quote unquote, people really like to quote Monty Python. And yet, Monty Python's still kind of... Yeah, it's still good. It's funny. It is. If you're someone out there that quotes Monty Python, the booketing loves you and supports you, just don't do it in the wrong way. Or to us. Or to us, (laughs) yes. (laughs) Ah, Frankenstein, yes. It's the name of the doctor, not the monster. Yeah, it's an important point to make. Did we make that point? Nope. (laughs) The point, the hack point that... It's not Frankenstein... As the monster, it's Frankenstein's monster. Mm. Frankenstein. Should people watch Rooker. Young Frankenstein? <laughs> oh, man. No, they should not watch Young no, Frankenstein. Yeah, but it's pretty funny. It's, it's funny, hilarious. Don't, don't watch it. I remember a couple years, four or five years ago, watching it again and thinking, so do I. wow. <laughs> yeah, Brennan remembers that. I got in the hot water for that. <laughs> I heard about that. Uh, yeah, not, not one of my shining moments there. Everybody's done that. You just did it on a larger scale. <laughs> uh, well, that's my problem. Let's watch Apocalypse <laughs> Now for the booking. That was mine. Recent, my most yeah. recent one. Uh, all right, guys, let's do. Sorry, folks, we like to give you bang for your buck, but I just don't know what else to say about Frankenstein. They got bang for their buck. This is great. Yeah, yeah. Every episode of the booking is wonderful. I'm a fan. If they just get to spend a little bit of time with us, that's all. Yeah, you um, just need to give us more money. Yeah. If you want us to do three more episodes on Frankenstein, just give us $1,000. Yeah, no we'll happily do three more episodes. Yeah, no one-star reviews. Whoever that was, that was pretty passive-aggressive of you. Yeah. Because it, it's a one-star rating and not a review. Which you you know, got you to gotta let us know what you didn't like. And you're you're probably the type of person that you give one-star reviews, and yet you still listen to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, probably. You're just so path- you're y- pathetic. You probably wear a scarf when it's not cold. Oh, what they didn't mention was yada, yada, yada. Yes. <laughs> one star. <laughs> well, it's hard to respect a one star rating that doesn't come with a, with a review. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Go back and give us a review, then we'll actually have something to so say respond to, yeah. to think about. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Write us Maybe a letter. Maybe you actually have something valid to say. We will never know that. No. Thanks. Yep. All you're doing is proving your pettiness. Mm-hmm. Like, Just Emily C., she gave us a three star review, and she explained why. Yeah. I appreciate Just Emily C for that. She, her name might as well just be Emily, Just Emily C. How awesome she is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what she said was, if Christianity isn't your thing, this may not be the podcast for you. I like their book discussions, though. Three I stars. I agree 100%. If Christianity is not your thing, this may not be the podcast for you, but you might like our book discussions. Yeah. Yeah. And other Three non-Christians stars. have said the same thing. I well, always like to see a five-star review. That's better. But the, sure. the f- We got... A four-star review from a non-Christian, and it's titled Review from a Non-Christian, and it's awesome. Yeah. Should I read it? This is the kind of thoughtful review that's actually helpful to people. Yeah, go ahead. I stumbled upon this podcast while looking for discussion about Anna Karenina and was pleasantly surprised. I've listened to a couple more episodes since, and I found these guys to be perceptive and well-researched. They have great chemistry, 
and their taste in literature is very similar to my own. It's always exciting to listen to a book discussion where the hosts share all of your literary reference points. It's like, you know. I get all my references. Yep. Yep. That's what I was going to reference. Yep. Cormac McCarthy, Raymond Chandler, etc., as well as more classic authors. It doesn't hurt that they're smarter than... All right, this is going to sound self-aggrandizing for mm-hmm. me to read. But you didn't write Sorry, it, Sorry, I didn't write it. It doesn't hurt that they're smarter than me and bring up points that might have gone over my head. <laughs> We're smarter than this guy. Now, to the Christian element. Like I said, my first experience with this podcast came about after searching for episodes, specifically on anachronism. So initially, I wasn't aware that this was partly a Christian perspective podcast. As a non-religious person, secular humanist, I guess, I had a real wait-what moment towards the end of the episode. One of the hosts didn't like the nebulous ending and said, which Levin had turned specifically to Christ. I don't like the nebulous ending either, but for different reasons. Anyway, I have to admit, little moments like these do jar me a bit. If you're not religious, it feels totally out of left field. Now, just to pause there, I don't really think that neb- we needed Levin to turn to Christ at the end of Anna Karenina. That would be a very weird ending to that novel. I vaguely remember what he's talking about. I, but... I vaguely remember, too. I'm not... I think I'd have to go back it, to listen to... I don't I, think we don't need, remember. like, our our heroes of all of our novels to turn to to have a turn to Jesus. That was the real problem with Frankenstein, right, boys? That there wasn't an altar turn to Jesus. A gospel. He didn't. Well, no, but we did say something. I do think that every episode should end with every book should end with the Baptist church altar call. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm not making fun of this guy. This guy is absolutely correct, and I'm I'm sure whatever we said about Anna Karenina makes sense in context. It's just in another episode. I seem to remember someone saying there can be no dignity without God or something to that effect. Again. Don't get me wrong, these hosts are anything but smug, but one common aspect of Christianity and most religions, I guess, is that believers often see themselves as position, as in possession of the one and only truth, so they can't imagine that anyone can have a fulfilling life without their particular God in it. Like I said, these guys are very likable, knowledgeable, and self-aware, but if mm-hmm. you find the endorsement of a specific sectarian belief system in itself a bit obnoxious, this might not be the podcast for you. I guess it's a testament to how much I enjoy other elements of the show that this doesn't stop me from listening in a lesser podcast. It definitely will. This is a very sweet review, even though he... I hope if he's still listening, he understands better where we were coming from today than when he wrote this review. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you should let us know but, if you're still but, listening. But, but what's great about this review is it's thoughtful, it's critical, it explains his perspective, and it's got his full name there. And yeah. it's potentially helpful to other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So go give us a thoughtful review, guys. If you're going to be critical, that's fine. You want to give us one star? Go mm-hmm. right ahead. We can take it. But explain it to us and help us and be try to be helpful to the other people. That's the point of a review. It's not just to puff us. Yep. And so. this guy that thinks we're a Christian perspective thing, we're going to throw some bricks through his window. Right. Because we know his thank name. You, right, yeah. We're going to look him up. <laughs> with, with a thank we're going to dox yeah. him. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with what you just said, Jake. Uh, okay. I'm just kidding. Of course, one star. The guy that left the one star, what he needs to do is he needs to undo the one star. He needs to actually buy us a star in the star registry. Name it after Brandon. Yeah. Like be great. The Brandon Star. Buy me Polaris. I want to be the North Star. I'm going to guess that that one's already been taken, but. Oh. Yeah. If you want to give us a one star review, give us a one star review and explain that the reason you gave us a one star review yeah. is because you bought us a star mm-hmm. in the star registry. Yeah. And then also, buy us four more stars. After, and so they that named you can, it after yeah. us. There's a star named The Bookening out there somewhere now. Nice. Right. Do it. I think Do you it. Can. Do it. Do it. <laughs> hey. I just want to say, in case they missed it, mm-hmm. Clayton Hutchins and Z Gracie, still the two best reviews in all of iTunes history. Not to knock any of the other reviews, because they're all wonderful. No, I mean, I mean Travis, Travis Michael's review, whose review I just read, pretty great. Right. But uh, Clayton Hutchins and Z Grace Z, mm-hmm. the two greatest reviews in all of iTunes history, all of Apple podcast history. How Easily. can people join no the question. club of these great reviews? Oh, it's very simple. Mm-hmm. 
It's very simple. Clayton Hutchins' review reads like this. The Booketing is the greatest, most charming, most intelligent podcast I have ever listened to. By no means am I under the imperious curse. NZ Grace Z's reads, The Booketing is the greatest, most charming, most intelligent podcast I have ever listened to. By no means am I under the imperious curse. <laughs> Pretty great. Yeah. So take a hint. Yep. We Join the club of Apple's greatest reviews. Yep. Mm-hmm. You re- leave us a review that good, we'll read it on the air. As we we've will. Done. Hey guys, let's do some donor shout outs. Do you have to go? You probably have to run out the door. You want me and Brandon to handle donor shoutouts? Would you please? Jake has to go, folks. Say goodbye to Jake. Give us a scream. Yeah, give us a scream. Ah! <clears throat> All right, let's do it. All right, do it. Yeah. All right, Brandon. Mm-hmm. Jake's yeah. banging, banging around as he leaves. He's picking up his Fu Manchu or whatever the that food is. He's got a little Tupperware cup of, what's it called? Quinoa. Let's do it. I've got about seven minutes myself. Okay, let's go really fast. Chelsea E. Chelsea E. Nathan. Uh, Jimmy Beam and little Annie Oakley. The Inscrutable. Jenny Z. Lily of the Valley. Andrew and Esther, the Lovebirds. Robert and Rhonda, the Lovebirds. John and Jill and little baby Max. My beloved mother, Beth. Sammy G. Ooh, DJ Sammy Goodbye, G. Jake. Goodbye, Jake. Jay and Katie, the lovebirds. They are cold and love cheese. Benny. Oh, yeah. No, sorry. They're cold and love cheese. Nathan, get it right. Benny and Dana T. Benny and Dana T. Eric and Eric Catherine. And Catherine, the lovebirds. And Professor X. Professor X. Professor X, Professor X, Booking was written, produced stuff, things. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Die. Die. <laughs>